for this morning, I, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. How did that happen? I, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're going to try to look at uh, verses 1 through uh, 16 and we'll not be able to go into any kind of deep dive on anything in this chapter, but I think that the uh, message of God to us from this chapter is very befitting to what we'll be doing uh, today with our election meeting uh, coming up after our service. The title of the message this morning is Elders and Deacons in the Household of God. Elders and Deacons in the Household of God. As I said in my email uh, to you yesterday, I, I bring you this message with a heart that uh, is both heavy and excited uh, at the same time. From the heaviness standpoint, um, there's just been a, a number of things that have come to my attention in the church at large that have just left me and I know the staff uh, deeply troubled. Uh, just last week, for example, I read a news report of a pastor in Rancho Cucamonga who was arrested for inappropriate behavior with a minor. Just this week, I watched video footage of a church business meeting in Virginia that went horribly wrong. In the news in recent months uh, have been stories about a pastor plagiarizing the sermons of another pastor in multiple sermons without giving even the slightest bit of credit to that other pastor. A few months ago, a pastor of a megachurch in Los Angeles was removed from his position uh, for adultery with a woman that he met in the park. Even closer to home, three years ago, a highly esteemed uh, pastor, even in our circles, who was one of the Shepherds Conference speakers at Grace Community Church for a couple years in a row, was removed from his ministry for adultery. And I learned just this past week that the adultery that this pastor was involved in involved his exploitation of a woman who was one of his seminary students. On another front, over the last few weeks, there's been a running series of podcasts on the rise and the fall of a famous church in Seattle. And a central part of that awful, terrible story is the way the leadership of that church behaved that hastened its demise, leaving a whole ton of wreckage and hurt in its wake. I don't need to tell you guys that the choices that a church makes regarding its leaders are very important and has huge ramifications. And the choices that leaders of churches make have huge ramifications as well. In one of his books, R. Kent Hughes uh, tells the story about a church in Dallas, Texas that experienced a split 
among its members. And once the split occurred, both sides immediately began fighting for the church property, waging war with one another in full view of the people of Dallas. Both sides filed lawsuits against the other in secular courts, but the judge uh, in one of those uh, cases referred the case back to the denomination to handle, and during the proceedings with the denomination, the denominational representatives did an investigation to find out where the conflict began, and ultimately they learned that it started Several years prior, when at a church potluck, a certain elder was served a smaller piece of ham than the child who was seated next to him, something this elder took great offense at. And sadly, this discovery was reported in the local newspapers for the people of Dallas to read. I'm not sharing any of what I have just shared in order to point the finger away from us and at other people. Anything I've just shared with you could happen here at Cornerstone from the big sins all the way down to the little sins that could end up causing a root of bitterness to spring up and to defile this congregation. And I need not look any further than myself to see proof of of this. I was sharing with the staff just a couple weeks ago how um, just years ago, I was having a phone conversation with Alvin Davis, who's now an elder here at Cornerstone. And he told me that he wanted to come alongside of me and help in the ministry here at Cornerstone and just help carry the load of ministry. I couldn't believe my good fortune hearing those words from Alvin, and I happily told him to come on board and do whatever he wanted to do. And so he did, and as he did so, he served this congregation with excellence as he does to this day, and he lightened my load in the ministry, and he also began assuming a larger role in people's lives in this congregation. And one day, Alvin and I were in the church lobby talking with each other when a man from our church um, walked through the front door. This man was a member of our church. When he walked through the front door, he was clearly in distress And upon seeing Alvin and me standing there talking, this man made a beeline toward Alvin and fell upon his neck and cried on his shoulder for a few minutes while Alvin embraced him. I was standing there a few feet away and was surprised at the thoughts that I found myself thinking I should have been thinking about this weeping brother, but instead I was thinking about me and feeling jealous that this man was crying on Alvin's shoulder and not mine. Thankfully, as I stood there, 
battling with my thoughts, the Lord gave me the perspective I needed. The Lord reminded me that if I wanted to share the burdens of ministry with others, then I will have to give away the blessings of ministry to others as well. And if I'm not willing to do that, then this church will never grow beyond the ability of my ego to handle. The next day, I confessed my jealousy to Alvin and shared with him what the Lord showed me in that moment. And I share this story with you right now to say that I am no better than that elder in Dallas who was offended because he got a smaller piece of ham than somebody else. I've been just as petty in my heart on a number of occasions, and I know that I have enough potential for sin in me to do great damage to this church body and to even split this church right down the middle hundreds of times over. And you do too, right? We all do. And so I must give careful thought and we all must give careful thought to how we conduct ourselves in this place that we call the church. And that includes the leaders that we select and what we demand of our leaders and what we want our leaders to expect from us. And fortunately, Paul speaks to these issues in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3, in verses 14 through 16, Paul speaks these words to Timothy. Look at the text beginning in verse 14. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Look at what Paul says in verse 16. Get busy bringing social justice to the world. Solve poverty in your community And make sure you have your personal devotions every day. And all God's people said, no, is that the mystery of godliness? No, Paul doesn't point us to us or to anything that we do to explain the mystery of godliness. If you want to know what the mystery of godliness is, it isn't you. But Paul points us to Jesus Christ who did it all. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul says. And then he says, he who was revealed in the flesh, which would include Christ's birth and his life and his death and even his resurrection, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. He is the mystery of godliness. So if you want to be godly, come to him and believe in him and fix your eyes on him, Jesus Christ. And to our purposes today in verse 15, Paul makes 
very clear how he views the church of the living God. He views it as the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, as the platform upon which the truth about Jesus that I just read is set for display before the world. Paul also views the church as the household of God. In other words, the local church is God's family living under one roof, as it were, with each member having duties to perform in order to make the household of God function as it ought. Paul also viewed the church as the place where a Christian ought to conduct himself. Based on the words that Paul uses in this text, Paul assumes that a Christian, that every Christian is conducting himself in the context of the household of God. And his goal in 1 Timothy is simply to help a Christian to know how to conduct himself in the household of God well. This means that if you're wanting to know how to conduct yourself in the local church, there's a lot for you to learn here in 1 Timothy. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul talks about what he expects from the men in the household of God. And he also talks about what he expects from the women in the household of God. And then we come into chapter 3 and find that Paul expects for each local church to have the right kind of people serving as elders and deacons. Choosing elders and deacons is a part of what is involved in conducting ourselves well in the household of God These are decisions that have huge ramifications. Lives can be wrecked by unqualified people serving in these roles, and great blessing can result from having godly people serving in these roles. And we have opportunity in our election meeting this afternoon to make some choices about who will be serving in these roles for the coming year and beyond. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is just give you four truths, four truths that we should keep in mind as we choose elders and deacons to serve our church for the coming ministry year and beyond. Four truths. Truth number one is this. God wants the church to have elders who oversee the church. God wants the church to have elders who oversee the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. The word that is translated overseer here is the word episcope, uh, which literally speaks of someone who looks upon. It's got the word scope in it, to scope upon. It's someone who looks upon others in a caring way. So an overseer is someone who has his eyes on the people of God in the congregation, and he is concerned about their welfare. From this passage, we learn that serving the church as an overseer is a work, which means it's not for the lazy But Paul also tells us that it is a fine work. And the word that is translated as fine here in verse 1 is the word that speaks of something that is good 
and beautiful. The work of looking after the people of God in the church of God, the people of God for whom Jesus shed his blood is among the finest of works. By the way, when you think of someone doing the work of overseeing the church, think of an elder, think of a pastor, because in the New Testament, an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an overseer. We see all three of these elements in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You can just jot that reference down. Uh, listen to what Peter says, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Peter 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you, and then verse 2, shepherd or pastor the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So we have eldering, pastoring, and overseeing, all three of those words together. So an elder is a pastor, and a pastor is an overseer. And coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it is because the work of pastoring and overseeing and eldering is a fine work that Paul assumes that every local church will have elders, and he now walks Timothy through the qualifications for that eldership. And this leads us to the second truth that we should keep in mind today as we choose elders and deacons to serve our church for the coming ministry year and beyond. Number two, God insists that qualified men serve as elders in the church. God insists that qualified men serve as elders in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, an overseer then must be. And what follows are Paul's expectations or God's expectations of elders in the church, both what they must be in order to be qualified to begin to be elders and what they must be after they are put in the position of being an elder. So this text here is not just a list of qualifications. It's also a job description that tells how an elder is to live out his calling for the good of the congregation that he has responsibility for. So let's read through this list and elaborate just a little bit on each item as we go in verse 2, Paul says, an overseer then must be above reproach, meaning that there is no legitimately disqualifying accusation that can be brought against him. Paul continues and says that an overseer must be the husband of one wife. And literally, this means that an elder must be a one woman kind of man. This would mean not only that he is married to one woman, obviously, but it would also mean that his heart is fully devoted to the woman who is his wife. This would mean that he's not an adulterer, that he doesn't have a mistress on the side, nor does he have a roving eye and a heart for other women. If our earthly marriages are patterned after the relationship 
and the coming marriage between Christ and his church, then it is essential that elders in the church model Christ's love toward his wife. And so we as elders love our wives that God has given to us, making our wife our number one joy and ministry. That's all that's embodied in being a one-woman man. Next, Paul says that an elder must be temperate, which means that he is not to be controlled by wine or anything else that might make him anything less than sober. This also means that an elder is not to be an unpredictable man who is easily carried away by fads or by extremes of emotion or even by the emotions of other people. On a related note, Paul then says that an overseer must be prudent, which means that an elder must be a reasonable man who lives his life and engages in ministry in a way that reflects careful thought and right thinking. He is a man who seeks to be wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove as he engages with the people of God. Paul also says that an overseer must be respectable. And the Greek word that is translated respectable here is kosmios, which speaks of something that is orderly and, in fact, beautiful. In fact, this is the Greek word we get our English word cosmetic from. The idea of being respectable in this sense is that the elder is a man who influences others through truth and through beauty. As Blaise Pascal said, uh, around 360 years ago, I quote, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof alone, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And so he gives this advice, make religion attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is, unquote. This is one of the jobs of an elder and of all of us in the church. Paul continues and says that an overseer must be hospitable, welcoming people into his heart and into his home. The Greek word translated hospitable literally means love of strangers, which means that an elder is to have an open heart toward all whom the Lord brings his way and his heart and his home should be open to all. Paul continues and says that an elder must be apt to teach, which means that an elder must be both willing and able to instruct others in doctrine and in practice based upon the teaching of God's word. This is one of the main functions of an elder in the church, whether that teaching is happening in front of the congregation or in front of a class or in someone's living room as that elder is counseling or mentoring someone in the church. For an elder to be able to do this well, he must be grounded in the truth of God's word, 
clear about the claims of the gospel and its ramifications for all of life. And then that elder must be involved enough in people's lives so that he can impart that knowledge to others in opportune moments. Now, obviously, there are some things that can get in the way of an elder doing these things and being what he should be toward the people of God. And Paul speaks to some of those things in verse 3. He says here that an overseer must be someone who is not addicted to wine. This expression literally means that an elder is not to be beside wine, which means that an elder is not to be a person who lingers long at his wine, who overindulges in wine to the point of intoxication. An elder is not to be a person who, whenever he is troubled or bored or upset, rushes to be beside his wine for rescue. In other words, wine cannot be his savior. Paul does not want a man serving as an elder in the church who has even the remotest addiction to wine because eldering, spiritual leadership, and addiction to wine make for a horrible combination that can do a lot of damage to the sheep, right? Terrible words have been spoken. Awful deeds have been committed by people when their inhibitions are lowered by alcohol. And Paul wants to protect the people of God from such things by insisting that an elder be someone who is not addicted to wine. Do you feel the love here? Paul continues in verse 3 and tells us that an overseer must be someone who is not pugnacious, meaning not a striker, not someone who delivers blows, In other words, an elder is not to be a person who strikes people with his fists or with his words. Paul does not want a pugnacious man being an elder because he knows that if a man with pugnacious tendencies becomes an elder, the rigors of eldership will cause him undoubtedly at some point to lash out at others with his words or even with his fists, and do great damage to the sheep as a result. Rather than an elder being pugnacious, Paul continues in verse 3 and says that an overseer must be gentle, meaning that he's kind, he's forbearing, he's gracious, he keeps the power that he has under control and only uses the power that he possesses to do good to others rather than to damage people. Tied to that, Paul says that an elder must be peaceable, meaning that he's not a divisive person, but pursues peace and reconciliation in relationships. In an elder shepherding ministry, it will inevitably happen that he will have to deal with anger from the very people that he is trying to help. But even when church members are behaving in a provocative or angry way, God wants an elder who's peaceable and who responds with gentleness and peaceableness. And again, I hope you guys are feeling loved here. God loves his sheep. He loves you so much 
that these are the kinds of behaviors that he requires of those who have responsibility for you because these behaviors reflect his own heart toward you. As for the things of this world, Paul says in verse 3 that an elder must be free from the love of money. In other words, he must be a man who lives a life of contentment, not bound by money or the things that money can buy. And he's not clearly in the ministry for the money that he can make in doing so. God loves you so much as the people of God that he does not want elders over you who love your money more than they love you. As for the elder's home life, Paul has already said that an elder must be a one-woman man. But look at verse 4, where Paul adds that an overseer must be one who manages his own household well. Literally, an elder must be one who stands before his household. This speaks of leadership, leading his household and the rhythm of its day-to-day life and leading his household in the things of God. Paul specifies that part of what this entails is keeping his children under control with all dignity. He doesn't just say keeping his children under control, but keeping his children under control, how? With all dignity. An elder is to be a man who keeps his children under control, and he does so not through explosions of anger, nor through trying to be a comedian to his kids and being liked by his kids at every moment, but he does so by the gravity of his bearing is what the language here indicates. Yes, he is a man of good humor and great joy in the Lord, but he's also a man who fears God and knows what to be serious about. And he's serious about his role as a dad and how high the stakes are for his children. And he parents his children and leads his household accordingly. Why does Paul give such a guideline here that a man must lead his household well if he is to be an elder? Well, in verse 5 he says, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's a question that doesn't get asked enough in churches across the world. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Think about it. If a man is not managing and leading well that part of the church that is within the walls of his own household, why would we place even more people under the care of such a man? I should note that we all should realize that this expectation is not simply something that Paul wants from the elders in the church. This is something that Paul obviously would want and that God would want from all the men in the church. And God requires it here of elders because he wants the elders to set an example and help foster a culture of godly men who are leading their households in godliness. Paul continues in verse 6 and says that an overseer must be someone who is not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
God only wants men who are seasoned in the faith to be entrusted with the role of pastoring the flock of God, men whose faith has been tested and matured through years of walking with Christ. Paul doesn't want a new Christian to be elevated to the position of elder because he knows that premature elevation of such a man to this position will likely make him proud and lead possibly to his spiritual downfall. And it's out of love for the new convert that Paul says, don't elevate such a new convert to the position of being an elder. Paul wants new converts to be protected from the temptations that come with eldership. And finally, Paul says in verse 7 that an overseer must be someone who has a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Paul knows that even non-believers have the law of God written in their hearts. They have a sense of what's right and wrong. Even total pagans appreciate when someone is honest to them and doesn't steal from them and treats them with integrity and honor. And Paul is saying here that he would want only men to serve as elders in the church of God who are faithful in their dealings, even with non-believers, to such a degree that even non-believers could vouch for their integrity and faithfulness. These are the kinds of men that God wants to serve as elders and pastors and overseers in the church. And this is the kind of behavior that God wants them to manifest once they are in office for the good of the church. And we are so blessed here at Cornerstone to have elders who are known for these qualities and continue to grow in these qualities and who exhibit these qualities so beautifully to the people of this church body. There's a third truth that we should keep in mind today as we choose elders and deacons to serve our church for the coming ministry year and beyond. Number three, God wants the church to have deacons appointed to serve in various ways. God wants the church to have deacons appointed to serve the church in various ways. A number of years ago, the elders took, uh, it was probably like 12, 13 years ago, the elders took several months to study the role of deacons in the New Testament and even in church history. And during that study, we observed that the word diakonos, which is the Greek word for deacon, diakonos speaks of a person who serves or who ministers to meet a need. So there are two ideas that go to the core of what deaconing entails. It's service to meet a need. Service and need are the two ideas embodied in deaconing. Technically, every member of the church of Jesus Christ is called to engage in deaconing. In fact, you can write this reference down, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul 
speaks in that passage about pastors and teachers and others being given by Christ to the church. And then in Ephesians 4.12, he says, for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of diakonia, diakonia, for the work of deaconing to the building up of the body of Christ. So we learn here in Ephesians 4.12 that every Christian engages in deaconing, serving others with the intent of meeting needs. And hopefully that message was not lost on you this morning when you walked in and saw the signage in the church lobby as you came in this morning. Christ wants everyone in, excuse me, in this church body serving with the intention of meeting needs. And you don't even need for people to tell you what to do. See needs and move toward needs and meet them. So if everyone in the church is deaconing in this way, that raises the question, what is it that someone with the office of deacon does? Well, a deacon is someone who does what every member of the church is supposed to be doing. And they do that in a particular critical area of ministry that is assigned to them by the elders, a position critical to the life of the church that requires integrity in its execution, that we would want the whole body to be involved in selecting. Beyond this, not always, but often the office of deacon involves serving as a leader over others in that particular arena of ministry. To say it another way, every member of Cornerstone should be deaconing those who serve in the office of deacon or those who have been given an assigned position of special trust that assists the elders in some way as they engage in an area of ministry that the elders and that the whole congregation has participated in entrusting to them. So that being the case, obviously we would want biblically qualified men and women to serve in these roles of deacon and deaconess. And this leads us to the fourth and the final truth that we should keep in mind today as we choose elders and deacons to serve our church for the coming ministry year and beyond. Let's word it this way. God insists that qualified persons serve as deacons in the church. God insists that qualified persons serve as deacons in the church. Observe what Paul says beginning in 1 Timothy 3.8. He says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. In other words, they're serious men who behave in a way that is worthy of respect that earns the right to be heard and followed. He also says, not double-tongued in verse 8. A deacon is not to be a person who says one thing to one person and then speaks in a contradictory way to another person. They speak, and when they speak, they speak with integrity. Paul continues in verse 8, and says that deacons should not be double-tongued or addicted to much wine. 
In other words, they do not overindulge in wine to the point of intoxication or addiction. You'll notice similarities between the qualifications here for deacons to those of elders. He says they're not addicted to much wine or, as he continues, fond of sordid gain. In other words, they don't love money so much that they're willing to gain money through unjust or unethical means. But, verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning that a deacon is someone who is embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life and endeavors to inform his conscience by the Holy Scriptures and then live consistent with that conscience informed by the Holy Scriptures. He seeks to keep a clear conscience by behaving according to that conscience informed by the Scriptures. And when he violates his conscience, he repents and he seeks forgiveness and works to make it right. Keep in mind that these qualifications that are listed here obviously represent what God wants for all of his people. And he wants deacons to set the example and help foster a church culture that exhibits these qualities. Like don't read verse 8 and 9 and say, man, I'm glad I'm not a deacon. Because I'm not a deacon, so I don't have to be dignified. I can be double-tongued. I can be addicted to much wine and fond of sordid gain. Only the deacons have to do that. No, God wants this for all of his people. And he wants deacons to be an example of this. Paul continues in verse 10 and says of deacons, these men must also first be tested. And this word speaks of being examined and then approved after examination. And then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach meaning that there is no disqualifying accusation that can justly be brought against them. Let's skip to verse 12 for just a moment. Paul says deacons must be husbands of only one wife. In other words, they're a one-woman kind of man, fully devoted to their wife as their number one joy and ministry and good managers of their children and their own households doing a good job just as the elders are to do of standing before their households and leading their wife and children in godliness. Deacons, yes, they are servants in the church, but they are not to be so devoted to the church that they neglect their families. No, Part of how they serve the church is that they are models of devotion to their wife and their children. Paul then says in verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. God values deacons in the local church. Those who serve well as deacons obtain a very high standing in God's economy. Their standing is second to none in God's kingdom. You say, what about verse 11? Well, let's go to verse 11 since you asked. In the middle of Paul's qualifications for deacons, he says 
In verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Who are these women that Paul is referring to here in verse 11? Some say that they are just simply the deacon's wives. But if that is the case, we're left to wonder why Paul gave no qualifications for elders' wives earlier, right? Also, if Paul was speaking only about the deacons' wives here, we might have expected him to say their wives must likewise be. But instead, he simply says women must likewise be, which is probably an indication that he's speaking of women who serve as deacons or deaconesses in the church. This would indicate that the position of deaconess in the early church was open to women in the church, but the position of elder was open to men only. By the way, you can jot down this reference, Romans 16, verse 1. Paul speaks to the Roman in the church of Rome, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, our sister Phoebe, who is a diaconon of the church, which is at Centria. And our translations, most of them say servant. But the language Paul uses here, referring to this sister as a diaconon, as a deacon, likely indicates that she was a deaconess in this church, which would explain maybe why Paul deemed her worthy to carry his letter to the church at Rome and why he describes her in Romans 16 as a helper to many. And so historically, the way that we have understood verse 11 here at Cornerstone over the last 40 years of our church's existence is we understand this verse to be providing a place for deaconesses in the local church. And so we have deaconesses. We have women serving as deaconesses here at Cornerstone. As far as qualifications to be a deaconess goes, notice that Paul uses the word likewise in verse 11, which indicates that the spirit of the qualifications that he has just given for deacons also applies to the deaconesses, which is maybe why he doesn't relist them all. As for what he does mention specifically, Paul says in verse 11 that a deaconess must be dignified, which again means worthy of respect, behaving in a way that earns the right to be heard and followed. This is a woman who is serious about her faith and her walk with the Lord and her service to others in the church. Also, a deaconess is not to be a malicious gossip, meaning literally she cannot be a devil talker, being an accuser of the brethren and speaking against people and running them down, gossiping about others behind their back. Paul also says in verse 11 that such a woman must be temperate. There's that qualification again, which means that she is not controlled by wine or anything else that would make her anything less than sober. 
in her life and in her ministry to others. And lastly, Paul says that a deaconess must be faithful in all things, which means trustworthy, dependable in all spheres of life in the home and in the church. Paul concludes this very section, guys, talking about elders and deacons by saying the following, and this brings us right back to where we started this morning. He says in verse 14, I'm writing these things about elders and deacons and deaconesses to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Paul wants elders and deacons and deaconesses to exhibit the qualities that he's been describing here because it ends up helping everyone else in the church to know how they too ought to be conducting themselves in the household of God. So as we look at these qualities, parents, go through these qualities as you think about rearing your children and raise your children toward these qualities so that they one day would at least be qualified to be great servants in the church. God wants the church to have qualified elders and deacons because it helps the church to carry out its mission of serving as a pillar and a support of the truth. And what is the truth? Paul concludes this chapter by saying, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. See, when a church has leaders and servants exhibiting these qualities, we most effectively point the world to Jesus when we're not operating in this way. And we have leaders and servants in the church and even members of the church that are not operating consistent with these qualities. We take the eyes of the world off of Christ to look at our sin and at our bad behavior and give the enemies of Christ reason to blaspheme the very Savior that God has called us to extol and point people to. I mentioned at the outset of my message that I bring this message to you this morning with a heavy heart and with excitement. I explained a portion of my heaviness to you at the beginning of the message, but I do want you to know that I am excited too. And that is because of the lineup of church officers that will be put before you for a vote in our election meeting this afternoon. We're so thankful for those church officers that have served our church so faithfully over this past most challenging year that we have had in the life of our church. And we look forward to the service of many of them again in the ministry year that begins one month from today, along with some uh, who are new to these positions. We look forward to putting the names of these men and women before you in the coming moments. 
and giving you the opportunity as members to affirm them as we prepare for the ministry year coming up in a month. Let me just say this. You can learn a lot about a church by looking at her leaders. And you can learn a lot about a church's leaders by looking at the church they lead. And you can learn a lot about the heart of Christ for his church by looking at the kind of leaders that he wants serving his precious sheep. Because Jesus is a good Savior who wants his sheep to be properly cared for. And this Jesus is worthy of our highest trust and our obedience. And so let's go to him in prayer right now and ask for his enabling as we seek to live out the very things we see in this chapter today. Lord, as I go through these qualities for both elders, deacons, deaconesses, the cry of my heart is, oh God, save me from my sin and make me more like what I read here. But I also inevitably turn in my mind's eye to the Lord Jesus Christ who was the perfect embodiment of all of these. And he is the pastor, the senior pastor who never, ever lets his people down and never sins and who always stands ready to forgive his people when they let him down and sin. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your perfection of attributes that are on display in a passage like this. We thank you for the grace that you have brought into our lives that has saved many of us in this room. And day by day, you're transforming us to be more and more like you. We thank you for the grace and the forgiveness that you so freely are delighted to give when we fall short and how that grace serves as the wind beneath our wings, helping us to soar toward greater likeness to you, our loving and gracious Savior. I thank you for the elders and for the deacons and the deaconesses here at Cornerstone who so beautifully display the qualities we've studied this morning in ways that are just such an inspiration to me personally and I know to many in this church body. We thank you for them, Lord, for your work of grace in their life and for their faithful labors on behalf of the members of this great congregation. And if there's any here this morning, Lord, that have never put their trust in you, may they be touched by this vision and this chapter of your heart and how you want your sheep, those whom you have saved, and bring into your household how you want them to be cared for and looked after and loved by the elders and deacons and deaconesses and by every member of the church. 
And I pray that you would draw them to a saving knowledge of you today, that they would call upon your name for salvation and believe in you. Lord, we have far to go and much to learn, but we're thankful for how far you've brought us and for all that we have learned. And our eyes are on you. And by common confession, you, Lord Jesus, you are the mystery of godliness made open and clear and made manifest for all of us. And we thank you for revealing that to us, not only in this passage, but at the cross and at the tomb and from where you now sit at the right hand of God. You are a good Lord and a good Savior. And we say to you this morning that we love you in return and we trust you. And we say these things to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,